Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Boy, you are on it today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're we're recording pretty early morning here, and that's usually sleepy time for you, so... I have another commitment, so... I know we... And you said, you promise, and I know that you were like, if you screw this up and you suggest it, not that you were well, being a jerk, was, but... What I was asking you, if you promised, is that you would be lively and awake this morning. Yeah, well, you kind of We were... used to do these early morning, and there were some sleepy episodes, yeah. so we got away from that. Yeah. I'm impressed. I just want you and our listeners well, to know how impressed I, I am. Well, I do have one small confession. Yes. Uh, the first couple comments when you were like, just so our listeners know, Matt is a morning glory. He loves to wake <laughs> up and it is the birds are chirping. Blah, blah, blah. And there were a couple comments that I was like, I just want to punch him in the throat right now because I'm not ready for that. But I'm glad that my faking. Oh, this morning already? Yeah. Oh. Like you okay. were, I don't know, saying something. And That's then you so were funny. Dancing around in the kitchen making breakfast. And I was like, oh, I just want to punch you. Well, I feel like a lot of times when you get up, I've already been up for a little bit and something has gone wrong. And so I feel like I'm already grumpy, like working on the computer grumpy. Have you already peaked at them by the well, time I wake up? No, it just makes me feel bad because I feel like, oh, here she is. She's got a shot at a fresh new day. Who knows what's going to happen? And she's got to deal with me being grumpy about some computer thing. And so when I'm not grumpy about some computer thing, I... I'm glad I'm glad we're having this conversation because I've always thought that my liveliness was good was good, but now I see it's too much. I'm just so, too much. It's not the first time I've been told that I'm just too much. Well, and I don't think it's the first time you've been told that your morning uh, routine and and chipperness is a little unwelcome well, from I, some of the family members. I only listen to the things you tell me when we're recording the podcast. Oh, okay, yeah. so we just have to be mic'd up like, the whole time. I want other humans to think that I have good listening skills. <laughs> I do not. I just fake it for an hour a week. Yeah. Yep. There's a couple of our family members that are not morning people, and I think they they have my gene. So, nope, but I'm here. I'm awake. I've had lots of water. Lively. I'm going to use the word lively. It's great to see you. Today... We're talking about a, a topic that can get kind of lively. We're going to talk about, you know, we're in this recovery game from alcoholism. We're in it from the perspective of the drinker. We're in it from the perspective of the spouse of the drinker. We're in it from the, spec, the perspective of recovering the relationship. And you can't help but from time to time wonder, okay, we're working on our stuff. We're working specifically with the people that we've come in contact with. But what about society more generally? What about the bigger picture? What can we be doing? How can we be involved? What's the right thing for us to work on when it comes to changing the way our culture views and really worships alcohol? Yeah, And it's something that we we spend some time just kind of griping and whining and moaning about, which I think is natural. But what can we actually do from an activism standpoint that would move the ball forward? Obviously, we're very well aware that it wouldn't be anything that just you and I could do. It would have to be something that a group, probably a large group of people, 
would work on. But but what should we be working on? And that's what we want to talk about today. You know, let's start right off the top with the legal things that could be done as it relates to alcohol. And I think that's a good place to start because, you know, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, as they say. And we have in this country, in the United States, a history with, that includes prohibition. So we have tried to make alcohol illegal. And that was a huge <laughs> flaming disaster, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yes, it was. And then it just makes me think about, you know, all the illegal bootlegging that went on and the cars. And there it started the whole NASCAR revolution. NASCAR and then that's bootlegging. just another drunken party. For, of course it <laughs> like is. It's just, Well, we're going to talk about a few things today that have backfired. That's right. Prohibition spurred drunken parties at uh, oval racetracks around around the country. That's pretty hilarious. But yeah, so, you know, telling people, especially in a freedom-loving country like the one that we live in, and you and I are freedom lovers, so that's not to criticize that at all, um... Telling people that they can't do something just makes them want to do it even more. Probably, like we're there are probably more drinkers during Prohibition than there were well, prior to and after. I mean, and it was kind of proven when our city of Denver, the mayor decided that the um, liquor stores and the dispensaries, marijuana dispensaries, were going to close during the lockdown and they for were the not pandemic, for the yeah. pandemic and they were not going to be essential and the lines were out the door. Everywhere, people trying to get people their booze stocking before the, up because they didn't they know when. Them. Yeah, now that's not to say you couldn't have gotten um, liquor, well, beer and wine and seltzers at the grocery stores and can you know convenience stores and gas stations. They must have all forgotten that, but they were b- cases of wine and cases of vodka being wheeled out to cars. So it's almost like they're a bunch of teenagers. I can't do it. Well, then I'm going to do it thrice as much. Thrice. Love it. You are fired up this lively. morning. Yes. You are lively. Maybe it was a little extra of the caffeine coffee and my half-calf decaf. Maybe it was two-thirds, one-third. Gotcha. Well, to come full circle on that, the ultimate decision was made not to yes. close the liquor stores and pot shops because uh, they were deemed essential. <laughs> and that's actually something that we talked about a couple of years ago on the podcast. Um but, but yeah, no, even temporary prohibition mm-hmm. is just not going to work. What about, what do you think about DUI laws? You know, when we talk about activism around alcohol and what can be done, probably the biggest success story, certainly that I can think of, is Mothers Against Drunk Driving and what they did in the, what, 80s probably? I think, I think we found out that they started, they started the, coalition or the group in the late 70s okay and then it rolled into the 80s for sure because i remember early high school and late middle school um that and then there was the chapter of sad students against drunk driving oh, yeah, I spun out of that, that. Yeah. yeah but so they they were successful in lobbying for legislation legislative changes to stiffen drunk driving laws mm-hmm. but i I question, is it where we want it to be? First of all, um, I'm a definite believer in states' rights and the fact that a lot of these decisions need to be made at the state level, not the federal level. Correct. But it is interesting that every state's got a different 
law as it relates to now, the the intoxication level you're allowed to have before you are no longer allowed to operate a motor vehicle. That's what I was going to ask. So it's not across the board, like. No, I think. I mean, I think they they're lined up pretty pretty close. similar. But like, you can't be like schnockered. You no, know, and, but then you cannot in one state have had one glass of wine and then you, you know, know it's considered illegal. But I was wondering I if that talk, was a federal mandate or. I don't want to talk about stuff I don't know specifically, but I what I know it's different state to state. Um, I don't know how close. Like I don't know if they're all lined up and pretty similar. But my question when it when I think about driving and drinking, the question that pops into my mind is. Alcoholic or not, I mean, okay, so as an alcoholic, when I started drinking, it was very, very difficult for me to slow down or to stop drinking. So the idea of uh, only having one beer in an hour and a half or whatever it is that they say is the amount that you would be able to have and still operate a motor vehicle and stay under the limit, um, that, that was out the window for me. Right. But I don't think I'm unique. I don't think you have to be an alcoholic for that first beer to taste really good. You want to have another one. And it doesn't take much at all to get over the legal limit. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to decision making, there's probably no time when your decision making is worse than when you've already got alcohol in your system. So the point I'm trying to make is you don't have to be an alcoholic for you to be at a party. You're having fun. There's friends around. Everybody's drinking, you have one, and you think, well, I'm going to have another, and then you think, I'm going to have another, and not get obliterated, not get stupid drunk or anything, but your decision on how much you can have before you're over the legal limit to drive is a decision that you're making while While you're you're impaired. And while you're enjoying it. So then you get that sort of, as I, I just remember flashbacks to parties, you know, that you and I went to, you were like... Okay, I'm just going to have a couple, and then I'm going to add in, you know, and my mind is calculating the couple you had throughout the day. And then, you know, because you were good at drinking, and you didn't act drunk, and you acted okay, it was really hard to argue with you that you had a couple, or you had three, and you could handle it, and they weren't IPAs or double IPAs like you normally drank at home. So then there would ensue the argument that you were okay to drive. Right. And that's why I tried to, like make a house rule when we were sober, when there was, you know, a serious conversation going on that how much was okay for you and how much was okay for me. And I know it sounds stupid, but when you're in that, living that life, you have to do that negotiation. Yeah. You know, but, but I, but you would also change the plan. Yeah. And you'd be like, I'm driving and then I can't, you know, well, because I had been drinking. So I decided that everything was fine. And you know, like that points to the same issue, right? Decision-making one, once, Slightly under the influence or more than slightly under the influence. I just, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done now on, on moderation, not just with alcohol, but with anything. A lot of it's around food, right? Because Mm -hmm. food is another, food's an even tougher addiction because you can't not eat. Right. You can not drink alcohol, but you can't not eat. And so once people start eating, then they want to keep going. And I fall into that camp. I, we were just joking with the kids the other night. They, everyone had a little small cup of ice cream they were having after dinner. And I said, I don't know if I want one of those. Because if I have no ice cream, I'll be fine. But if I have one small cup of ice cream, I will <laughs> desperately want 19 more small cups of ice cream. So I definitely have a sugar addiction to go along with my alcohol addiction. But, but I, I just wonder if the right answer isn't 
you know, if you're either going to drink or you're going to drive, I'm not here to try to outlaw um, drinking because I, you know, we've already talked about prohibition. That, that's a huge disastrous failure. It would never work. But is the right limit zero when it comes to driving? Because you're asking people who have alcohol in their system to make a decision about how much alcohol they can drink. How could that possibly go well? And it just doesn't. Right. I mean, people drink too much and drive all the time. Not alcoholics, just kind of everyday, everybody people. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. What, do you, what would you think about that? Well, I think, I think you're right. Like, I think of an example of a time where I had, we had talked about it. I was going to have, I was going to be the driver. We were at a party, talked about it beforehand during sober moments. You said, I think your limit should be one. I said, I think my limit should be two because I don't drink double IPAs and it was just going to be wine. And I ended up having white wine spritzers. So then that's, you know, a bubbles, bubble water in there, non-alcoholic. And so I had two and I remember there was like, well, you've had two. And I was like, but they were like half, you know, so it was like really one because, you know, I, I was becoming under the, you know, intoxication and the euphoric sort of little feeling. I didn't get it a lot, but I was like, oh, this tastes good. It's socializing. It's having fun. So I'll have another one. And we were there for, you know, like four or five hours. But even for someone in my case, who at that point was very much afraid of alcohol and fretting it, I still fell under that. So it was like, I would say zero. Yeah. Because I think then you're not going to like get swayed. And it's that abstaining. If you abstain from it altogether, then you're not going to like second guess your original plan. Yeah. Well, it does. It makes sense. And in most parts of the country, transportation is just so easy these days between traditional taxi cabs and Uber and Lyft Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Like the idea that that you gotta drive to get home is kind of a ridiculous one at this point. Right. It's not even that expensive to get home. I I mean, obviously depending on where you live and how far you're going, but you would think that it's it's not a huge obstacle to either drink or drive and not do both at some kind of mystical limit that you're trying to hit when you have no way of knowing exactly mm-hmm. how much you've had or how much it's influenced you at least. What about warning labels? I think when we talk about things that can be done, things that can be changed surrounding alcohol laws, um, I I think we want to move on relatively quickly from laws, from the legal aspect. But the one other thing besides DUI that I wanted to talk about was warning labels. Mm. You know, I feel like there's there's a more direct correlation. I mean, okay, let's compare this to cigarette smoking, right? It became blatantly obvious at some point i think in the 60s 50s maybe mm. that higher i think higher like well i you know i just watch like you think of mad men or M- mrs Maisel. they're drinking and smoking while they're pregnant and nobody's uh, right but the scientific evidence preceded the um the information being spread publicly so i think oh. we knew for a little while before everyone knew you know oh, i think the yeah. scientific community the scientific and, and that's community. kind of What's happening in with alcohol? I think the tie to cancer has always been kind of, you know, out there and and talked about. But I think it's becoming more and more direct. The tie between alcohol and certain kinds of cancer. There's all kinds of research about the connection between alcohol and uh, dementia, specifically Alzheimer's. Um, we all, of course, we know about liver disease. I just think that 
the connection between alcohol and disease has always been either swept under the carpet or it's a contributing factor, but there are other contributing factors too. So the correlation has never been discussed in a way that is as direct as the discussion has been around smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer, period, end of story. And, but I, I feel like that correlation is getting, is getting more direct. And I'm wondering if that will bring about an increase in warning labels. I feel like the big beverage lobby is so strong that it might not. But I feel like that's appropriate. Prohibition, no. Telling people what they can and can't do, no. But when we talk about laws that lead to education, like serious, serious warning labels that are as direct as the warning labels that we have on cigarette packaging, I think it makes sense. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think it makes good sense. I I, I like those. Um, well, I just remember being a little kid and a lot of my family members smoked and I would go around and break their cigarettes in half if they laid them out on the, if they left them out on the counter as I was consuming their coffee. <laughs> I was coming and drinking their coffee and breaking their cigarettes because my aunt and uncle smoked. Um, and I knew not to break my mom's cigarettes because she only smoked on Friday and Saturdays. In the evenings. <laughs> now, Your mother was a weekend smoker. I've never yeah, heard of that. Yeah. She, that was like her stress relief. She'd be, I'd buy RC Cola and the eight pack of glass containers and a pack of Merit Golds. And <laughs> I always knew where they were, but <clears throat> I never, I never messed with hers because she didn't smoke as much. Because well, you didn't my, love yeah. your mother enough to break her cigarettes. <laughs> I know. Well, I just, maybe even as a six-year-old kid, I knew that she wasn't, like, going overboard like my aunt and uncle and my my dad were. But I would break their cigarettes. And was um, it because of the warning because labels? Of, because as a little kid, I knew smoking was bad Yeah. for them. I even knew that my my papa, who chewed tobacco, I knew that was bad. Yeah. You know? And, and I don't even remember, like, getting an education as a little kid in elementary school. But then as we got older, we had, like, you know, this is what... Your lung looks like after you smoke cigarettes and, you know, nothing like that about the effects of alcohol on the body, per se. Little bit of, little bit in ninth grade of a chunk of a really rock hard piece of liver, basically, from cirrhosis that my, our biology teacher did. Um, Kudos to your biology teacher. Well, there was some drinking history with his older kids, so I think... It was he a wanted personal it. Issue. It was a personal issue, and he was a big advocate for it. And um, you know, we were freshmen in high school, going in to a small town that had lots of teen drinking. Um, I mean, it didn't necessarily make stop me, but yeah. as a little kid, I I ate it up with spoon. I just think that correlation needs to be more direct when it comes to things like warning labels. You know, I feel like we skate around it. Like, here's something that has to go. This. Whether it's mandated or voluntary, this please drink responsibly tagline. Who like, that's it? bullshit. That's No one even knows what responsibly and moderation and portion sizes are anymore. Right. I, mean, we just I love about... America, but we are big, fat, drunk Americans. <laughs> I mean, look at we, portion... we will overconsume anything. Over, yeah, overconsume anything. everything. Yeah, food, whatever, alcohol for sure. I mean, like as I was trying to plan this party... And we were serving adults. I was like, well, this is how much wine serving should be in a bottle, but let's say it's going to be this amount because we know that nobody's going to pour the proper amount of 
you know, especially since they're free pouring and it was box wine. Yeah. You know, a beer bottle is easier to kind of handle and count. And But I was like, I wouldn't count on people drinking the quote unquote serving size yeah. of wine. This was just to clarify, this was a party, a graduation party for our son, graduation from high school with five <laughs> other, five or six, six other kids. Yeah. So it wasn't like we were making the decisions. We were, um, I was just helping communicating guide. with yeah. others. I was just helping guide. Also having catering experience and, and serving sizes. So, yeah, but yeah, I would, but there, but how can you drink responsibly? Like we said, how can you even make a decision once you start drinking that I'm going to, I'm going to take an Uber now and I'm not going to, I'm going to not leave my car at the party. Yeah. They're going to drive home. They're not going to, they've yeah. been drinking. They're not going to say, I'll just leave my car and Uber home. Yeah. So the warning labels need more teeth. Like alcohol causes cancer, bold letters, you know, end it there. No, no can cause or oh. increases the likelihood or it, the cancer risk in alcohol. Yeah. It's a direct correlation now. So why don't we start talking about it? Like right. That? And I know we've talked about doing commercials like on TV. Let's talk about commercials. Um, well, you know, here's all the, like you said, the commercials, you and I were talking about this commercials. They can't consume alcohol, but they can have that and sell that lifestyle. Yeah. That was one of the things that I want to talk about today. I think, that has completely backfired the the way I and I don't know if that's FCC I don't know who um, mandates that but the way the advertising policy is written in the United States when it comes to television commercials you can have alcohol in the commercials but nobody can drink the alcohol and I'm wondering how many of our listeners have noticed that I imagine many of them have but there'll be lots of people holding beer or beers around them, but they're never actually putting it to their lips and drinking it. So somebody at some point said, this is how we curb uh, drinking or we do this responsibly. No one can actually consume the beverage in the commercial. And it completely backfired on whoever made that decision because the tele- the beer advertisers just went to lifestyle commercials instead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we can't show you know, rich, famous powerful people drinking the alcohol will show the alcohol in a situation that is wildly desirable. So the one that, you know, I don't mean to pick on Corona, but that's the one that comes up in my mind because it's always a beach scene. There's people on a beach and they're Calypso music in the back. (coughs) Excuse me. They're in their uh, bikinis and yeah, Calypso music and they're playing volleyball or something and splashing around and so who wouldn't want to be in that scene, right? Mm-hmm. You're in Buffalo in a blizzard and it you the Corona commercial you. comes on. How is that not going to increase sales of beer? Because we just want anything that would connect us to that lifestyle. So, I mean, that's just like a human psychology 101, you know, case study. If, if you want, um, if you want to sell more of something, make the, situation that people are in desirable as opposed to showing the beverage being consumed. Yeah. I just think that's fascinating. Then right after that commercial, there needs to be the, you know, the anti-drinking commercial of someone that's suffered or, you know, things like that. Yeah. Kind of like those smoking ones. Well, I'm glad you brought that into the conversation too because everybody thinks that you're not allowed to advertise 
smoking on television, and that's actually not true. You can advertise smoking on television. The way the again the rule, I don't know who FCC again, I don't know who it is that is the rule maker, but the way the rule works, if you do show a thirty second television commercial uh, advertising smoking, that company Philip Morris or whoever it is has to pay for a thirty second and equivalent um, PSA showing the dangers of smoking. And so at one point when smoking commercials were originally thought to be outlawed, they weren't actually outlawed, some of the companies tried that. They ran their normal commercial, the Joe Camel, how cool is this? Look at my cigarettes. I'm fabulous. Makes my hump shiny. <laughs> and then and then the next thirty seconds after was, you know, somebody with lung cancer or whatever the PSA was, and they found that the detriment done by the PSA outweighed the positive impact of the Joe Joe Camel, Joe Cool commercial. And so um, cigarette advertisers pulled the ads voluntarily because they couldn't afford the damage done by the PSA. I just think that's fascinating. It's not actually mm-hmm. illegal to, uh, to have cigarette commercials. So is that what we need for Big Beverage? Again... Let's not outlaw things. Let's, you know, we're a freedom-loving country. But show the side, the real but side of it. Show the other side. I mean, there, especially with alcohol, there's probably things that people don't even think that are going on with, you know, a coworker that's an alcoholic. But they're like, man, they call in sick, they come in late, they, you know, get upset at the customer a lot. You know, they don't even think. And we, I, there's a book that I read, and she has a blog um, Lisa Fredrickson, she calls it secondhand drinking. Or, boy, why is my student, like, he's sad all the time, all, you know, every Monday, or he doesn't show up. Well, because there's alcohol, you know, rage and terror going on in his house yeah. over the weekend. You know, there's so many things that people don't understand that are cause and effect, and it's not just the drinker's health. So there could be a thousand different scenarios. Sure. That you're like, wow, I had no idea that could be a drinking-related issue. And I don't know. I mean, I think that it could wake some people up. Well, I think I think that's going to hit home a lot more closely for a, a lot, literally millions of people, as opposed to the way we do it now, which is when there is alcohol PSA kind of material, it's a massively mangled car, and look what can happen if you drive drunk or... You know, somebody dies. It's worst case scenario, which those things really happen. I'm not trying to say that they don't, but that scared straight mentality. I mean, I with our local school district, I did just a little bit of work to to talk about um, what we could do for uh, teen education around alcohol and other drugs. And one of the things that the people at the district shared with me is that there's been a lot of research that the scared straight stuff doesn't really work. It's too it's too dramatic. It's like, you know, okay, yeah, I, I won't get blitzed and drive a car so that my car never ends up mangled like that. But it misses the point, which is there's so much damage that gets done before the car is mangled and somebody has died. And so I love your idea. I think presenting scenarios that are realistic to many, many, many people. Just, you know, here here's a couple that's at a party and they're they're socializing and everything's fine and everybody's happy and then the next scene is they're back at home and he's drinking vodka straight from a 
you know, vodka straight in a glass and he's screaming and yelling at her and she's yelling back and the, the chaos of an alcoholic relationship is being depicted. Yeah. I would like to see more of that. Right. Well, and I think when we do that scared straight stuff, it's all to, to young people and teens and they have that, you know, mentality that just, the, you know, they haven't fully developed, they have that... Um, uh, theory that that would never happen to me. Yeah. You know, they just don't believe any Kids of that. Kids are fearless. Fearless. Yeah. They're not, you know, and they know that there are scenarios where they can get their friends to drive. So it's not even something that in a lot of times is, um, lines up with their lifestyle. So, but and then if they were, say they are a teen drinker and they see the yelling going on of the couple, they see that PSA, they're like, ah, oh, crap. That's my parents. And, it, you know, they're not even maybe noticing that it's the alcohol that's causing the ar- the argument. You, you know, know, I just thought of this, but not only that, but, like, I think back to my teen years. I didn't get a DUI. I didn't get in a horrible accident. For the most part, I think my friends and I tried really hard not to drive while drinking. And I know that sounds like a total cop-out. I mean, you don't try hard. You just don't do it. I get that. But, yes... I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I'm a saint and I never dro- drove when I shouldn't have been or my friends. But we navigated that. We made it through. Yeah. But I can remember in high school having horrible screaming fights with my girlfriend. And I was too young and naive to tie it to the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a PSA like that would be helpful. Not only, Not only would that maybe have helped me as a teenager, a late teenager, but also... You know, once you're in your 30s and 40s, you've probably figured out what you are going to find acceptable as it relates to drinking and driving, whether it's right or wrong. You know, I know that there are people that drive around with a 16-ounce Budweiser in their cup holder as they're coming home from work. They, Whether it's right or wrong, they have, in their mind, justified, this is how I'm going to behave. So the scared straight stuff's not going to really impact them. Whereas, you know, if you see in your 30s and 40s, that's when things start to unravel relationship-wise, family-wise, work's getting more stressful, got a kid or two, um, not handling it particularly well, drinking escalates, and the fights and the abusive behavior and the gaslighting and all of the manipulation, all of that starts. And to see pictures of that when you are in a position like I was in, because for so many years, I denied that alcohol was the problem. I thought, oh, it's stress from work. Oh, my wife's a nag. Um, All these different things were causing the fights, but I never would think it was alcohol. But I feel like it would really reach people just to see people fighting and in turmoil on the home front and realize that that was alcohol caused. Yeah. I mean, and there's, like we said, there's a thousand scenarios you could have that make that. But maybe part of the... You know, drink res- please drink responsibly label would be a QR code that would start out as an advertisement, sort of a bait and switch, and then it goes into that PSA because, you know, so many people have those QR codes everywhere, and then you- that's where you link to find your information. They could have the video or the commercial or, you know, some more information. It doesn't have to be a lot of printing stuff. I mean, because people are curious about QR codes. Mm-hmm. That's true. So it could be something tied in through that. You know, stud- Absolutely. or just somebody saying studies have shown that this is what happens. It's not just, you know, liver 
cirrhosis. It's a lot of stuff that happens before that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, excellent idea. Let's talk about taxation. Obviously, you know, when you and I were in college, when we were still smoking, I think a pack of brand name Marlboro cigarettes was two bucks, if I remember correctly. Because I remember like the the generics were a dollar, like 20 cigarettes for two bucks. Yeah. And now... You know, I think it's like twelve bucks or something like that. I haven't, I haven't been in the market for cigarettes for a few decades, but I think it, you know it's it's dramatically more expensive, mm-hmm. and I think that taxation is a major contributing factor to that. How do you come down on increased taxation on alcohol? How do you feel about that? Well, I think that it would be wonderful. I don't necessarily think it would stop a lot of people, but it could possibly moderate. Also, I think the money that the the tax that would be earned, sold by, sold from the alcohol sales, should go to something helpful, like more education. And I know that you don't always think of like a federal um, government, you know, taking over, but there should be something, whether it's. Um, more education and mental health resources, more for the loved ones, more, you know, like um, clinics that are free or, oh, if you don't have great insurance, that's going to help you pay for your recovery process. It goes from this fund. Yeah. Make that 30 day inpatient rehab, not out of reach for people financially. Yeah. Use the tax money collected from from alcohol sales. You know, and continued mental health resources for the alcoholic yeah. and the loved one using using the taxation to alleviate some of that financial cost once you're in a bad situation later on. I couldn't agree more. I, I think if we do increase the taxes, I think it should be um, directly used to solve the problem that the alcohol is causing. I told you know I think of it I think of it when we think of roads, right? You've got interstate highways and local roads and whatnot where the pool of taxes that everybody that lives in that area pays goes toward maintenance of those roads and then you've got toll roads Mm -hmm. i think alcohol is a toll road i think there are a lot of things that should be done that way that people it's a use tax they call it right the people who are actually using the product that's causing the, the problems should be the ones that are paying for the fix of the problems whether it's the literally billions of dollars that alcohol um, costs our healthcare system or rehab or mental health or all the things that you were talking about. Yeah, there should be a direct link. I really like that. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a no-brainer. Although I know the big beverage industry would has, and the reason that that doesn't exist is because of the lobbying and the amount of money that they spend preventing that from happening. But I think that's a good area for activism it's not again it's not banishing it's not outlawing it's not prohibition but it's hey you just got to pay for the mess you made yeah i mean if you're not willing to pay for the mess you made then you know what are we doing here you know yep i think education is probably the key i think there there's more that we can do in education than in any other area because ultimately, in a freedom-loving society, people are going to have to decide that they don't want the crutch of alcohol as a focal point in their life the way it is now. Um, I know when it comes to 
educating people on the dangers of alcohol. And when we talk about doing that in the teen years, so in high school, maybe middle school, one of the big barriers, you know, you don't have trouble finding people who want to talk about education around opioids. That's the, you know, the current trends, the current trends. And it's the trend because there has been an increase in opioid abuse in recent years that, you know, the trend line is going straight up. But still far, far, far more people get in trouble with alcohol than get in trouble with opioids. We've just normalized that. You know, alcohol's just got this billions of dollar burden on our society and we're used to it. So we're not going to do anything about it. Well, but, and it doesn't have the, alcohol doesn't have the stigma that some of the other illegal drugs, like, you know, how fentanyl is is pretty prevalent here in in uh, Denver County for abuse and death. You know, there's a stigma attached to it and that's meth right. and those sort of things. Whereas, oh, kids are going to drink. Yeah. It's going to be fine. But once they start doing hard drugs, and even in our state and city, I think because pot has been legal, yeah. recreational for a while, they're even kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, that's fine. Just a little gummies every now and then. But, you know, we need to throw that stigma or, I guess, stigmatize it a little bit because there are so many other dangers well, that the, lead up. It's a slow death. The stigma as it relates to alcohol <laughs> is on the people that quit, right? If you think of all the drugs that are out there and you think of alcohol and marijuana probably in the same category, and then you think of what you called hard drugs, which I know that's what everybody calls them, heroin, opioids, cocaine, whatever, they fall into typically a different category. <laughs> No one's ever going to ask you why you're not shooting heroin and look at you, you know, with bewilderment in their eyes. Not in 98% of society. But alcohol is the one drug you have to explain why you're not consuming. If you're at a party and it's an adult party on a Friday evening and you're not drinking, there's a fair chance you're going to get questions about why you're not drinking. So that's one thing. The other thing, I mean, I, I, I'm not disputing your categorization of there's alcohol, there's weed, and then there's hard drugs. But I think it's important for people to realize alcohol is the only drug that you can die from withdrawal from uh, quitting cold turkey. You, can, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to come off heroin or meth, but it's not going to kill you. Alcohol, through seizures and and worse and complications, can actually kill you when you come off cold turkey. Um, so. Yeah, we call these other drugs hard drugs, but which all, one's yeah. the more deadly, um, both in total numbers and in a really kind of acute situation. So, yeah. but, but I mean, you're absolutely right. The stigma associated with doing hard drugs is one thing, and then there's the stigma associated with not drinking alcohol. I mean, this, this graduation party that you were just mentioning, toward the end, that, I mean, that teenagers started sneaking beers and I was sober and you were sober and we both noticed it and I think you were a little more proactive than I was and trying to eliminate it but it definitely there was a you know kind of kids will be kids mentality turn their back turn a blind eye yeah and um and and you know I I felt like I was looking at our son who was not drinking and I was thinking, gosh, is he not drinking because we're here and he knows 
um, that'll be very disappointing to us. What would be the situation if he was in that situation with a bunch of teenagers who were drinking? And I mean, I think he doesn't drink. I really believe that. But I, I can't help but put it in context of myself. I would not have had the fortitude, balls, balls sure, <laughs> to not drink when all my friends were drinking. A, because I loved to drink. But B, I just wouldn't have. I would have gone with the flow. If, yeah. all, if all the teenage boys are sneaking beers out of the adult cooler and trying to hide them, I don't know why they thought they were hiding them. But I know. It was very brightly lit and the cooler was wide open. But if that was what was going on, I would have been in there. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, the, the stigma is do drink. Don't be the one that's not drinking when it comes to alcohol. And so that's really disappointing. I think... You know, when we talk about changing education policy, one of the big problems is that the administrators in the schools and the parents, the majority of them drink. Yeah. So I mean, how are they going to take alcohol awareness seriously? Well, I think there's a lot of people that are concerned about their consumption, but they get defensive and they protect it, you know, because we have that culture of, oh, you just need wine to unwind or... You know, it's wine time. Like, that is so prevalent in our society that it just makes it really hard to escape. And then it calls into question. I have to act and live in a way that's responsible to be an example for my students or my parishioners or my, you know, my teenage kids that are my children. You know, whatever it is, you have to live by example. So you're taking away something that that person, that adult, enjoys because you're trying to show the younger kids, like, you don't need to have alcohol to have a good time. You don't need to, have, you know. Yeah. But really, you do because it's calling into your own addiction or your own obsession or your own abuse of alcohol. Or just, yeah, or just, or just normalization and this is, the, this is the way I've always done it. I'm an adult and this yeah. is the way I've always done it. Yeah. Yeah, so people don't want to change their lives and habits. They want to tell everybody else how to live, but they don't want to change... Their lives and habits, and and that goes against that goes with that mentality of oh, kids will be kids. Yeah. All teens are going to drink. All teens are going to experiment. Well, yes, they might, but it might be a one or two time experimentation. And if they see you living a life of abstaining mm-hmm. and and enjoying yourself and and having fun and being social, but not with a beer in your hand. Then they're going to be like, okay, yeah, that was a bad choice. And my parents came down on me for that. And maybe it's not the good way. Because look, they still, they still have a great life. Yeah. And to counteract those fantastic, you know, alcohol ads on TV of selling the lifestyle. Right, right. Right. Well, I, I don't think there's any question that education is an area where activism and money needs to be directed because... Um, I, I think it's on the list of things that we talked about, legal, marketing, advertising, taxation, education, I think education and just changing the, the mentality, changing what is normal is really our only hope. But all of those things are, I, I like to equate them to a term that many people who listen to this podcast have heard. It's a little bit like being a dry drunk. When you're just trying to keep people from doing this thing, consuming alcohol or over-consuming alcohol, 
it, it's kind of like when somebody decides to get sober and they just stop drinking alcohol and they don't do any other work. They don't do any of the recovery work. And that's something that I did for 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. For 10 years, I tried and failed to become sober. And I drank for the majority of that 10 years, so I don't want to make it sound like I was 10 years of sobriety. And I, I mean, I would have stints. I would go a few months <laughs> sober and then I would drink again. And then I would go a few months sober and I would drink again. But never during those periods of sobriety did I work on myself or try to understand the disease or try to understand the brain chemistry and and really get in depth in solving the underlying causes. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. You can do all the things legally, taxation-wise, media-wise, education-wise you want, but you're trying to take away the end result as opposed to actually solving the problem. You are a dry drunk at at that point. I, is it making sense what I'm saying? Yeah. So, well, what's that analogy? You're going to, you don't know why all the fish are dying at the end of the river. So you, what you got to do is you got to go, gotta go upstream, upper, upstream yeah. and figure out what the problem is and addressing that and hitting that. Absolutely. So I think. Stopping it. That's exactly it right. We got to go upstream. Stop telling people you're not allowed to. I don't know, fish the dead fish. That's probably a bad... (laughs) But you're not allowed to drink your pain away um, or your stress away or your social inadequacy away. Yeah. And think about teens, too. Yeah. Social anxiety. Young adults that are going, you know, that are in college or first out. First job. uh, Moved away from home. Like, you and I had that scenario. We didn't know friends. We went out for happy hour and we're like, oh, let's have a couple of cups of liquid courage to loosen our lips so we can make friends and meet people and absolutely like yeah just trying to give people the courage and the self-confidence to deal with their issues their mental and emotional issues but still be themselves that's right and feel good about being themselves and they don't need a liquid cup of courage to break the ice but rather than take the liquid cup of courage away Um, That's right. We need to just make it so that people don't feel the need for it. And so mental wellness and, you know, not feeling the need to medicate is super important. And when we talk about activism or what needs to change, I think the, the focus on mental health that we are seeing now, that we've been seeing for the last few years, that just, that needs to increase. I think there are a lot of people who haven't made the connection yet between a lot of people our age and maybe older who haven't made the connection yet between, okay, I get it. It's okay to talk about mental health. It's okay to talk about therapy. That's good stuff. But what does that have to do with drinking? I I don't think people have made that connection yet. And I think it's really important um, that we, that we do that. I think, you know, all the focus that we have in the alcohol addiction community is on recovery. And there needs to be more on prevention. Mm-hmm. What can we do mental health wise for people so that they never get to the point where they need to drink? And listen, the scenario that you and I deal with most often is the scenario that I went through, which is, you know, couple gets together, they go out into the big bad world and get real people jobs. They eventually have kids. That's where the divergence comes from. The wife, the sherry, um, slows her drinking dramatically, focuses on child nurturing. The man just drinks more because now there are kids to feed, and so there's added financial pressure. 
you've probably got a bigger job than you used to have, so there's more stress. Um, on top of that, your wife starts to not appreciate your drinking, which adds even more stress, so you drink even more. And you're, you're just going down this path of medicating, 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 stress, pressure, anxiety, depression, all these things that are naturally occurring as we get older because of the pressures that we're under. And, and, and then if you put on top of that the fact that typically in our society, men don't seek help for anything, but definitely don't seek help for things like stress and anxiety until it's too late and mm -hmm. it's gone too far. And so we just get into this cycle of, I'm just going to have a couple drinks after work and then a couple drinks is more than a couple and pretty soon we're we're drinking our stress away but we don't realize that the alcohol is not just a temporary terrible fix for the stress and anxiety it's also the cause of the stress and anxiety because that's how it works so a focus on you know hey how about if if every 30 plus year old adult male um, has a weekly therapy appointment whether you think you need it or not. I mean, I know that's unrealistic. I know that's right. not going to happen. But that's a hell of a lot better solution than I'm just going to have a few drinks to unwind after work every night. Mm -hmm. That's where people fall into the trap that I fell into. Yeah. Well, it makes me think, what can big companies that make a lot of money do at the end of a work day or a midday break, a mental health midday break? I know there are some that have, you know, like Amazon, Google, those sort of things. They have like... Um, basketball courts and meditation yeah. pods and those sort of things. What? But I wonder what bigger companies that are concerned about the mental health of their employees can do sort of at the end of the day or late in the afternoon. Yeah. So I wonder. Hmm. It's a good question. We, I mean, we talk a lot about all these things that we know we need to do, but then we yeah. brush under the rug anyway, like getting out in nature. You just brought up exercising. Connection with people, not through your phone, but actual right. physical interaction with like people. Like some sort of like end of the day wrap up. Or, yeah, we're going to take a walk man, around the park. You know, mandate, meditate, or just peaceful music and everybody lists to... Yeah. Yeah. And, everybody goes on a walk. <laughs> I don't know. We, when we talk about addiction and we talk about mental health, you know, I've, I've, for as long as I can remember, talked about the fact that there's a connection. I think it's more than there's a connection, that addiction is a form of mental illness. I think without mental illness, you never have addiction. Like I think it's a, and and maybe people are going to balk at that word mental illness if you're just stressed or you had a parent who died and it caused you to drink more. It's causing you um, emotional anxiety. It's causing something in your brain to not feel good and you're drinking that away. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling that mental illness. And when we talk about the addictions that we use to medicate that that mental unease it's not just alcohol right it's it's all these things it's it's other drugs it's porn it's shopping it's food it's exercise gaming gaming oh yeah all the tech all the different technology things that we do to soothe and medicate so you know you might be thinking well i'm in my 40s or 50s and i have a stressful life but i don't I don't drink. Well, but take a look. Is there something that you're doing to avoid reality? And it, that thing is not going to therapy. It's it's some kind of, you know, substandard or suboptimal, um, you know, med, medicating Thanks things for, away. 
transferred addiction or instead of eating one small cup of ice cream are you eating 19 like I do when I get into the ice cream you know I think there's some good news though on this horizon it's we look for the silver linings that are related to the COVID pandemic and by and large COVID was just terrible and awful and wish it had never happened but there are there are some things that have come out of it that have a positive tinge to them and one of them is the mental health focus I I mean I work in the schools I coach high school soccer you work with younger kids in schools um, but I certainly see much more openness and discussion and a ton less stigmatization around things like uh, you know people that are in therapy and talking about it openly um, I I had a a kid on my soccer team this last spring who had an eating disorder. And I think in the past that never would have been disclosed to someone like a coach, but it was disclosed not only by, I believe the mental health professionals who said, Hey, I want you to be aware of this. You don't necessarily need to bring it up with this kid, but I want you to be aware that this is happening. And then the kid brought it up to me and, mm-hmm. and wanted to talk about it a little bit. I think that's glorious mm-hmm. that we're, we're, we're talking about this stuff. And so, I, I think the as we return to whatever normal means now, this awareness that a lot of us have been impacted negatively in our mental health status from the pandemic and the lockdowns, that awareness is so out there, so being discussed that people feel comfortable talking about what they're doing to combat to combat it. You yeah. Know? So hopefully that's a that's a huge Apple benefit. Trend. Yeah. Yeah, I hope it is. Rather than um, you know an upward trend of drinking, let's have an upper upper upward trend of mental health focus and awareness. So, are, do you see that? Do you do you feel like I feel people, like people are more are, willing to talk about? I stuff? feel like people are more willing to talk about it now. I sometimes I wonder if they're like, oh, I am in therapy, and but if they aren't, if they aren't voicing what the issues are like the eating disorder like the anxiety like the electronic addiction you know social media addiction because i think that has to also be named yeah because i think that if we aren't naming what it's causing then we're just blanket statement like oh i'm in therapy and everybody should be in therapy doesn't even have to be like an individual one-on-one therapist it could be some sort of like support group yeah you know those sort of things but i think we also i i hope the trend is going to trend up and naming what it is that drew you to go to the therapist and um do you know what I mean I do you know it kind of it makes me concerned because I know that their teens are drinking less but there's so many other things well one of the things that you and I have noticed is when you've gone through something something traumatic something very difficult like alcoholism other people relate to you even if they haven't gone through that same thing People who have had a really serious cancer issue or an eating disorder or whatever, once you show your hand, they're much more willing to show their hand and talk about it. And you can become a support for each other, even if your issues are different. Right. And so I love the idea of not just I'm just in therapy, but but have the courage to name it, not in the, because of the traditional thing that we Americans which would do, would, would do, which is shame you for admitting what your problem is, but you own what your issue is. And then other people with different issues can relate to you and feel empathy. 
and you can have a shared experience even when the experience is a little bit different. Right. Because, I mean, it may not even be recognized that someone has depression um, because it can show up and they have now this classification of a high-functioning depressive um, person like I wish I could remember her name right now and I cannot. The, the former Miss America newscaster that recently took her own life. Um, but she was like a high-functioning depressant person and you would have never known it. Yeah. You know, so so naming it more and be like, uh, you're depressed or you're anxious, wow, they might resonate and see something in themselves or their friend or child or, yeah. or spouse. So, I think. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about, okay, what's the solution to the love affair that our culture has with alcohol that results in people becoming addicted to alcohol, which results in this family trauma and this destruction of relationships, and we're not talking about a few people, we're talking about literally millions of people. When you talk about all of that, and we look at how do we stop this cycle you know, we spent the first two-thirds of this discussion talking about ways to chop off people's ability or um, or make it harder, anyway, for people to drink. But really, I think the key is let's get to the root cause and chop off people's need to medicate with alcohol yeah. or other substances. And being open and communicative about it, that's the key. I mean, look at what we have seen... Inner Echoes of Recovery program, when people join us and they realize that they don't have a unique story, I mean, you would Sadly, think, they do not have a unique story. Yeah, you would think that that would be disappointing. You know, you want your story to be unique and different, but it's when you realize, no. oh my God, my story is just like everyone else's. There's so much comfort involved in that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the kind of root cause healing that we're talking about as opposed to just trying to make the substance less accessible. Absolutely. So, yay for mental health and mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially yay for my gender actually, you know, admitting that they could use some help and, and seeking it before it's too late. And yay for you on a personal note, because just seven, ten, eight years ago, something like that, I brought up to you about wanting to see somebody, and you thought it was the most ridiculous thing oh, yeah. ever. So I used to think therapy was ridiculous. Yeah, you thought therapy. So kudos to you for um, understanding and growing and educating yourself that it is very worthwhile. Yeah, but let, let's hope people don't have to go through a horrendous let's addiction hope that. Yes. to come to that awareness. Absolutely. I think that's the, I mean, that's the good news from this. That's the trend. Mental health, getting mental health help. That's all trending upward. That's more, becoming more mainstream and acceptable. And let's do everything we can to keep that going. Yeah. And not worry too much about prohibition. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety... We're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.